Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of this Lord's Day. And that unlike the, all the other days of the week, uh, this is the day that is set aside to assemble and to worship as your people. To worship as the Lord Jesus resurrected from the dead on the first day of the week. So we Christians were blessed through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. So also assemble on this day the Christian Sabbath. We pray today that as we assemble in study of this class, so also following in our worship service, that, <clears throat> that you would prepare our hearts and minds to worship you rightly in spirit and in truth. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would guide our continued study of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I did last week, I'm going to use the larger catechism to uh, lead us in the discussion. Today, we're going to look at the offices of Christ. You probably saw that coming last week when uh, the larger catechism was leading us in bringing up the question of the offices of Christ. And they are, you may recall from last week, because you filled in the blanks, right? How, how is that? And we even, even got the last two for Chris to make sure that we, we filled out his complete sheet. We wouldn't want him to be without those. But the three offices of Christ are prophet, priest, and king. I could be corrected, and probably should, uh, but uh, at least by, by my recollection, I believe that these categories uh, came from Calvin's Institutes and were adopted and uh, brought in as much of Calvin's theology was into the Reformed Confessions and Catechisms uh, that followed out of that great Genevan scholar. And um, we see these categories, of course, more refined as they are expressed in the, the Westminster Confession and the larger and shorter catechism. In the larger catechism, as we ended last week in, in pointing to these three offices, now the larger catechism then stops and says, okay, let's make sure that we understand what we are saying. And of course, we're going to look at the scripture today that supports these. What do we mean by Christ it was a prophet, and the question specifically is, how doth Christ execute the office of prophet? Listen closely to this answer, and then we'll look at this more closely. <clears throat> Christ executeth the office of a prophet in His revealing to the church in all ages by His Spirit and Word in diverse ways of administration the whole will of God in all things concerning their edification and salvation. Now, there, the way that that is stated, and again, we'll look at this as we walk through this, uh, but the way that that is stated, it tells us several things. First of all, it tells us a robust and fully biblical understanding of the church, doesn't it? In other words, when it says, in His revealing to the church in all ages, it is telling us something important about the church, and that is what? What is this telling us 
something important about the church. It is always it has existed from the beginning. That's right. That's exactly right. So, in other words, there is a, a misunderstanding, and and you will encounter this, and and I encounter I encountered it this weekend, for example, um, in, in in visiting uh, with a, a fellow that used to be a part of uh, a, a home church movement, and uh, as I was listening, uh, and I, I wasn't. You know, this was not a debate. I wasn't correcting. All I was doing was just standing there absorbing. But I could tell after a while in the way that the, the, the fellow's terminology that, that he had a fairly limited ecclesiology and his understanding of the church began in the New Testament. And so he had a limited understanding. But a couple of things I want to draw to your attention. Um, first of all, uh, and this is not in your notes, so there's this is just you know, bonus material. Um, first of all, the word church, our English word church, comes from the Greek word ekklesia. The Greek word ekklesia means assembly. That same Greek word, when it is used in translating the Old Testament scriptures from Hebrew into Greek, is used of the assembly of Israel. So, the Old Testament church was the assembling of Israel. The New Testament church is broadened. It's the assembling of the Lord's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so what this is making sure that we understand is, first of all, we understand that a prophet, whether we're referring to Old Testament or New Testament, it is an office pertaining to a revelation to the church. Not to everyone, not to all of the, the, the world, but specifically in His prophetic representation, it is to the church, Old and New Testament, uh, in all ages, in other words. The second thing that I want to draw to your attention before we get into uh, these specific points is... <clears throat> The misunderstanding of the word prophet. Um, oftentimes, in modern ears, hear the word prophet and they think of someone who foretells the future. Um, and yet, as students of Scripture, we know that while that did happen within the prophetic offices, there were also prophets who did not foretell the future. Uh, the, the base understanding of a prophet is not someone who does or does not foretell the future, but it is someone who is ordained by God to proclaim the truth. To proclaim the truth. And you're going to see that uh, as this develops um, in these points. So, let's begin with this. First of all, Christ as prophet is the great revealer of the Father. Christ as prophet is the great revealer of the Father. Think about it this way. 1 John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And again, you'd need to look at it in context to understand that it's talking about Jesus. But Jesus who the ascended Christ is seated at the right hand of authority, which is a position of a father, and he came and made known to the father. Uh, what did Jesus say 
to His disciples when they were questioning, when, when, when are we going to see the Father? And what did Jesus say? If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father, which I always, always read with just a, a bit of pointedness. Uh, it is as if you should have known this. Uh, you should have understood that I am the revelation of, the, of God the Father to man. And so God is prophet, that is, He is presenting, He is proclaiming the truth, and He is revealing God the Father to us. Number two, the Spirit of Christ revealed divine truth to the Old Testament prophets. Revealed divine truth to the Old Testament prophets. First uh, Peter, this is in your notes, First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 <clears throat> Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It is interesting in Peter's writing, he refers to the Holy Spirit in two different ways. One way he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. The second way he refers to Him as the Holy Spirit. In the first one, it is fascinating to read it in context, in this context, when it is saying that the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. The prophets were looking, they were seeking to know this true revelation. And it says, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated, uh, yeah, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. In other words, it was the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, who was indicating to them, who was leading them, who was revealing to them this divine truth. Number three, Christ as prophet brings the final revelation of God to man brings the final revelation of God to man. Hebrews chapter 1 begins this way, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And so Christ as prophet brings this final revelation. Uh, someone would say, uh, I would like to know God. Uh, we can, without hesitation, tell them that God has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Number four, Christ revealed truth from the Father to the apostles. To the apostles. 
And so we have the Old Testament prophets, the Spirit of Christ speak, spoke to, revealing truth, and we have the apostles where <clears throat> Jesus says to them in that famous chapter of John, chapter 15, where He's talking to them about what to expect, what is to come, so forth and so on. And He says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. God the Father speaks through God the Son. God the Holy Spirit delivers, as Peter says, carried along by the Holy Spirit to the apostolic testimony. And so the apostles deliver to us the benefits of that in the New Testament. Number five, Christ's prophetic work edifies or builds up His body, the church. Christ's prophetic work edifies or builds up His body, the church. And I'm going to draw from two passages here. Um, Acts chapter 20, verse 32, and also... No, let's see, I may not. I may have left off. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, le- I, I accidentally left off Acts chapter 20. But Ephesians chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 11 and 13 says this. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. And if you, you think about this in terms of the confidence that we have in a complete canon, um, we're not waiting uh, for uh, some man to, to disappear into a forest and then come back and say, well, I've encountered the angel Moroni and he's given me golden tablets of which I can't prove that I have them. Um, but uh, but I, I'm telling the truth. And so you better believe me because I have the prophetic word from God. Um, well, we have confidence not to believe him uh, because the apostolic uh, order closed with the conclusion of the death of the apostles. God chose to reveal his word to his chosen ones. He has not since chosen to reveal himself through Mormons, charismatic preachers, or street corner preachers who want to tell you that they have a word from God. We have a word from God. It's contained in the revelation of Genesis through Revelation. And that concludes the prophetic distribution. But that's why, incidentally, why as a church and why every church should be a word-based, word-teaching, word-preaching church. There are a myriad of different things that churches can do and can go off and get busy doing and so forth. And we see that in our our day and age where many churches have been very good at doing social works within a community. But when we forget the basis of being built upon the Word of God, we've missed the point of Christ's prophetic office. Christ's prophetic office is is benefits us as a church when the Word of God is opened, when the Word of God is taught, when the Word of God is read publicly, when the Word of God especially is preached, 
And that's why, as, as someone said before, at, at what point does uh, preaching go out of vogue? And I said, the wrong, that's the wrong question. You, you don't understand that preaching ceases when Christ returns. Until then, we preach the Word. Why? Because it is the prophetic Word of Christ delivered to us, and God uses it to edify us, He uses it to build us up, so forth and so on. So preaching never ceases in Christ's church. Number six, Christ's words are recorded in Scripture in order that by His work as prophets, men might believe and have life. Men might believe... and have life. That should not be plural. That should be his work as prophet, <laughs> singular. A men might believe, and uh, it may be singular in your notes. In my, my notes, it's plural, but um, I typed this, so, you know, there's going to be errors. Uh, <laughs> uh, but <clears throat> in John chapter 20, verse 31 It says, but these are written so that you may believe. Of course, this is the Apostle John speaking. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so the prophetic word is delivered to us through the Spirit of Christ, and it is through the Word of God that by believing in what the Word of God teaches us, that we have eternal life. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so it is that essence of what the Word of God teaches us in believing that gospel. Okay, number 44. Question 44 in the larger catechism. So we've talked about Christ's office as prophet and you can see now that the, the, the emphasis that is put in Our Reformed theology and through the supporting scriptures is the emphasis is on the proclamation of the truth, the proclamation of the Word as God has delivered it in Christ through His Spirit. And so now we'll change gears and go to the office of priest. How doth Christ execute the office of priest? Christ executed the office of a priest in His once offering Himself a sacrifice without spot to God, to be a reconciliation for the sins of the people, and to make continual intercession for them. So, let's start with this first one. Christ executes the office of a priest in offering Himself as a sacrifice to God. He executes the office of priest offering himself a sacrifice of God. And we talked about this a little bit last week. You may recall when we were talking about how Jesus fulfilled the law, Um, but oftentimes that is thought of in terms of active obedience. But in terms of Christ's passive obedience, so also he fulfilled the law because a sacrifice was required. Because there is no Forgiveness without, the sh- there is no remission apart from the shedding of blood. By God's design, a sacrifice must be made. Blood must be shed for the penalty of sin. And so God's law requires what Christ 
actively and passively fulfilled upon the cross. Hebrews 9, uh, 4 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from deadly works to serve the living God? And again, it's the first half of that verse that we're drawing from here. But the point is, is that <clears throat> Christ was the perfect sacrifice. When Hebrews says, without blemish, what's that referring to? Without sin. It is a veiled reference back to the Old Testament, right? Because a lamb was to be offered without ble- the, the best of the herd. The best was to be offered. It was not to be sickly. It was not to be deformed, so forth and so on. And that was pointing to the perfect obedience of Christ in the sense of He was without blemish, without sin. And so Christ executes this as offering Himself as the perfect sacrifice to God. Number two, Christ offered Himself once for the sins of many. For the sins of many. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And again, there, there is, there is uh, some debate in terms of uh, the atoning significance of the timing of Christ's death, and I'm not going to get into that, but the point is this, is that Christ's death, his atone, the atoning effect of His death, was not for everyone so that there could be a system devised so that once that system was created, therefore someone could choose to believe in the system in which He created and therefore be saved. He did die, and it it talks about, and the Scripture's talking about God's love for the world and the emphasis upon that, but the point is, is not that Christ died and so now everyone is saved. Except for, you know, as they say, you know, Hitler and the person, your neighbor and the person you don't like at work. You know, everybody else is saved. Um, and, and, of course, we know that's not the case. But we know that Christ died for many, the significance being that He died for His elect. And we mean that from an efficacious standpoint. A big word I know on an early morning. But efficacious just simply means the effect of Christ's death. The effect of Christ's death, as some theologians will say, was sufficient for all. In other words, the power, the saving power of Christ's death was sufficient for all, but it was not efficient for all. Meaning that it was efficient only for His elect, and all of His elect come by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ offered Himself as a priest for His people, we might say. Number three, Christ offered Himself in order to reconcile His people to God. To reconcile His people to God. Now, I'm going to talk about this more in my sermon, and so I want to avoid preaching my sermon uh, today. uh, But prior to 
coming to faith in Christ, what were you? Well, you were, I was, we were, apart from Christ, sinners. We know that. Romans, chapter, uh, Romans 3.23, right? We've got that. Um, we know we were guilty and do death. Romans 6.23. Um, we also know that we were referred to as ungodly, so forth and so on. But there's also a word that many people uh, find somewhat offensive. And that is that Scripture says that apart from faith in Christ, we were the enemy of God. Not just lost needing to be found, not just sinner needing to be saved, although both of those are true, but we were the very enemy of God. And so if you think about that, the picture of reconciliation is not... I mean, look, if I'm at odds with my wife, um, we're, we're going to work it out. If I'm at odds with my best buddy, we're going to work it out. If I'm at odds with the person who hates me and wishes I were dead, big problem. Probably not going to be working that out, right? Maybe we do. I don't know. But the point is, is that Christ, uh, God in Christ reconciled us. That is, the Scripture says that we are brought near to God. The ones who were the very enemies of God have now become the children of God. We who were far off, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, have now been brought near. Maybe that's Ephesians chapter 3. Anyway, it's in Ephesians. Uh, we're brought near to God and Christ. And so that's the idea of this word reconcile. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, Therefore, we had to be made like His brothers, His being Christ, right? By, like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, what... <clears throat> The writer of Hebrews is saying is, is that the atoning effect of Christ's death brought us near, reconciled us to God, and not only that, it's not as if we're in the category of, um, well, here's Jesus and here's those that used to be my enemy. They both get into the kingdom, but just in different categories. No, Scripture says actually we are brought near in the sense that we are brothers, like brothers with Christ, or as the King James translates another verse, we are joint heirs, adopted children with the same rights and same inheritance as Christ. That's reconciliation. I mean, that's like understanding that word in Christianity is like, wow, it means all that. Yeah, for eternity, that word reconciliation is huge in terms of what we are in Christ. Number four, Christ as priest makes continual intercession for His people. Christ makes continual intercession, interceding on our behalf for us. Hebrews chapter 7, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. What does the word intercession mean? 
Sometimes you'll hear it used as a synonym for prayer. So is that, is that what is, is meant here? Uh, is that Jesus is in heaven praying for you? Uh, or what does this word intercession mean as it's used here? And it's important for us to understand it. To intercede carries the idea, although it's not the same word, it carries the idea of mediation. It carries the idea of Christ is doing something for us in our relationship with God continually over and over again that we cannot do ourselves may come as a surprise to some evangelicals, but when you come to faith in Christ, you don't then, because you're such a good Christian, now come to God and say, here I am, congratulations, heaven's better, right? No, we are, what's, what would be the word here? We are in right relationship, here's justification, we're in right relationship with God in Christ, so also He is our mediator. We are in fellowship. That was the word I was looking for. We are in this fellowship with God by virtue of what Christ is doing continually. And of course, this involves our prayers as well as we pray through Christ to God the Father, but so also the very right to do it. That's the concept of intercession. The very right and practice and privilege and all of that is bound up in that word. And so when you hear this verse and it says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. In other words, we come to Him in Christ alone. We're brought near, or as it says here, draw near, since He always lives to make intercession for them. There's a consistency it is not as if once we are in Christ, then Christ says, well, today it was so bad, no intercession for you, right? No, that's not how it works, but it is continual, perpetual unto the end. Question 45, we're doing okay on time. How doth Christ execute the office of king? So this is the, the third category, prophet, priest, and king. And of the, the three sections in the larger catechism, this is actually my favorite, uh, it says, Christ executeth the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and suffering, restraining and overcoming uh, sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. That's like an entire systematic theology textbook. Uh, there is a lot there. Uh, a lot of different categories uh, that they, they use <laughs> here. And so with the time we have remaining, we'll look at these different categories. First of all, Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself. And this is incidentally, and maybe you're not like me, but for me, when I first read this definition, I was like, didn't see that coming. I didn't see that aspect of 
uh, of his kingship. But if you think about it, and I'm going to read the scripture, but if you think about it, it, it is in a sense of a summons. He who is rightfully king, and there is no other king, he who is right, rightful king and all-powerful and has all authority, when he summons a subject, they will obey. He calls them in the sense that I'm like, I got it. That's, that's imagery that helps me understand this. Uh, here in Acts chapter 15, we get sort of a working example of it. Simeon had related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and will restore it. The idea there is that God is calling in Christ a people to Himself. A surprise... And as students of Acts, you know that the apostles were surprised, right? And the Jerusalem council was surprised when all of a sudden they found out that Jews were also the heirs. What? What are you talking about? And Paul's like, I'm not kidding. This is, this is serious. I have seen it with my own eyes. They have indeed received the Holy Spirit. They have believed the gospel that I am preaching. And all of a sudden their minds open. They say, wow, the King of Kings is calling a people to Himself. And they're not just Jews, but they're throughout all of the world from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The prophet Isaiah says, Behold, I made a, him a witness to the peoples. That same word can also be translated nations. Uh, A leader and commander for the peoples. Uh, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and the nation that did not know you shall you run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. And again, the, the idea here is that God is calling a people to Himself as King, that they are indeed His rightful subjects. Uh, see also Genesis 49.10 and Psalm 110.3 in your continued study. Number two, Christ executes the office of a king in giving His people officers. In giving His people officers. You know, one, one of the things that uh, many people don't understand is that, but, but we do as Presbyterians, don't we? That God works through church government. That God works in raising up men to serve as elders, raising up deacons to serve the church, and in this, God governs His church. It's by His design. It's why when we have someone who is nominated to either of those offices, who goes through training, who is tested, who is examined, who is interviewed, and then is subject to an election of the church, and then we meet as a church for an ordination service, that's not for pomp and circumstance. It has significance, and the significance is is that we as a church are acknowledging what God has done from heaven. He has raised up a man to serve His church. And so when we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, that He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, that's also pastors, and 
teachers, so on, that this is what God does. He raises up and He uses these men according to His gifting and appointment. So also 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues, and so forth and so on. And within the the, the New Testament church, we see how God worked through these different giftings. And some of that language sounds foreign to us since we don't have apostles today and since we don't have tongues today and so forth and so on. But the general idea is still there. This is how God works. He works in giving and appointing and raising up. Included in that, number three, Christ executes the office of a king in giving his people laws. In giving his people laws. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22. The law of God is a gift, and God has given us laws that we know rightly to live unto Him. Number four, Christ executes the office of a king in giving His people the censures of church discipline. The censures of church discipline. Incidentally, uh, the Reformed tradition, what are the marks of the church? Meaning, according to the Reformers, there were certain things that they said... If the quote-unquote church has these marks, then they may be understood as a true church. What are the marks of the church? Huh? Well, just, just with what the church does. What are the, the marks? Meaning identifying characteristics of a true church, according to the Reformers. True. So, according to the Reformers, word, sacraments, in other words, if the church is not teaching and preaching the word, it's not a true church. If the church is not uh, administering the Lord's Supper and baptism, it's not a true church. And then thirdly, the third mark, which surprises many, is discipline. If the church is not disciplining... And that can be positive in the sense of teaching. It can also have a negative sense in which someone uh, that is disobedient must be corrected, so forth and so on. But these are the marks of a true church according to our tradition. And so when we look at, and I'm, I'm out of time, but when we see Christ as king, that makes sense. Because he's king, because he is head over his church, of course, then there are going to be identifying marks of his kingship. Number five, Christ executes the office of a king in bestowing saving grace to his elect. Christ executes the office of a king in rewarding his elect for their obedience. Christ executes the office of a king in correcting his elect for their sins. Or what 
Susan Haynes told me her brother calls spanctification. Christ executes the office of a king in supporting His people in their temptations and sufferings. Christ executes the office of a king in restraining and overcoming the enemies of His people. Restraining and overcoming Christ executes the office of a king by powerfully ordering all things for His own glory. I'm out of time, so I'm just going to read you these. And then finally, Christ executes the office of a king by powerfully ordering all things for the good of His elect. And Christ executes the office of a king in taking vengeance on His enemies who know not God and obey not the gospel. I didn't realize that I I was that far from the conclusion. I thought I had just one page. So I'll come back and try to touch on some of these. A couple of these are pretty important uh, for us to look at in terms of the kingship of Christ. But I'll come back and touch on these next week uh, as we look at part three of this study. Let me pray for us. Our God in heaven, you are our prophet, priest, and king. And in each of those three, we assemble in worship under you today. For you have given us your word. You have saved us by your atoning sacrifice that we might draw near to you. And that you rule and reign over our hearts. You are indeed worthy of our worship. Lead us, we pray, by your spirit to worship you rightly today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.